Welcome back to Morpeth Moments. I'm Marlene and I'll be giving controversial accounts of true crime, about murder, other tragedies and sometimes some events of interest involving people who have had connections with the town of Morpeth, New South Wales and its surrounding districts. As convicts, soldiers and settlers made this area their home, stayed for a while to discover their niche or moved on to seek their fortune. Stories are based in the 19th and early 20th centuries. I tell my stories with great respect for the victims and their families. The accounts are researched and referenced by myself from open sourced information, family research, state archive records and Trove newspapers. Please feel free to email me. My address is on my podcast page. If there is any misinformation, or you would like to add or find out more, please contact me here. I retain all of the information I find. Music by Kevin MacLeod. Sound effects by YouTube Library. I thought I'd continue on from my last episode of Bush Graves by reciting a poem by Henry Lawson, The Bush Undertaker. Five Bob the old man shaded his eyes, peering through the dazzling glow of that broiling Christmas day. He stood just within the door of a slab and bark hut, situated upon the bank of a barren creek. Sheep yards lay to the right, and a low line of bare brown ridges formed a suitable background to the scene. Five Bob! shouted he again, and a dusty sheepdog rose wearily from the shaded side of the hut and looked inquiringly at his master, who pointed towards some sheep which were straggling from the flock. Fetch him back, he said confidently. The dog went off, and his master returned to the interior of the hut. We'll yard him early, he said to himself. The super won't know. We'll yard him early and have the afternoon to ourselves. I could a bit of the dough boy, and that there bog of brill eat like tater marrow along of the salt meat. He moved one of the black buckets from the blaze. I likes to keep it just on the sizzle, he said in explanation to himself. Hard boiling makes it tough. I'll keep it just a simmering. Here his soliloquy was interrupted by the return of the dog. All right, five bob, said the hatter. Dinner will be ready directly. Just keep an eye on the sheep till I calls you. Keep them well rounded up and we'll yard them afterwards and have a holiday. This speech was accompanied by a gesture evidently intelligible, for the dog retired as though he understood English, and the cooking proceeded. I'll take a pick and shovel with me and root up that old black fella, mused the shepherd, evidently following up a recent train of thought. I reckon it'll do now. I'll put in the spuds. The last sentence referred to the cooking, the first to the blackfellow's grave, about which he was curious. The sheep's are camping, said the soliloquizer, glancing through the door, so me and five bub will be able to get dinner in peace. I wish I had just enough fat to make the pan, sis. I'd treat myself to a leather jacket, but it took three weeks skimming to get enough of them there doughboys. In due time, the dinner was dished up and the old man seated himself on a block, 
with the lid of a gin case across his knees for a table. Five Bob squatted opposite with the liveliest interest and appreciation depicted on his intelligent countenance. Dinner proceeded very quietly, except when the carver paused and asked the dog how some tasty morsel went with him, and Five Bob's tail declared that it went very well indeed. Here, try this, cried the old man, tossing him a large piece of doughboy. A click of Five Bob's jaws, the doughboy was gone. Clean into his liver, said the old man with a faint smile. He washed up the tinware in the water the duff had been boiled in, and then, with the assistance of the dog, yarded the sheep. This accomplished, he took a pick and shovel and an old sack, and started out over the ridge, followed a course by his four-legged mate. After tramping some three miles, he reached a spur, running out from the main ridge. At the extreme end of this, under some gum trees, was a little mound of earth, barely defined in the grass, and indented in the centre as all Blackfellow's graves were, he set to work to dig it up, and, sure enough, in about half an hour he bottomed on payable dirt. When he raked up all the bones, he amused himself by putting them together on the grass, and by speculating as to whether they had belonged to black or white, male or female. Failing, however, to arrive at any satisfactory conclusion, he dusted them with great care, put them in the bag and started for home. He took a shortcut this time, over the ridge and down a gully which was full of ringbark trees and long white grass. He had nearly reached its mouth when a great greasy black goenna clambered up a sapling from under his feet and looked fightable. Damn the lump up thing, cried the old man. It gin me a start. At the foot of the sapling he espied an object which he at first thought was the blackened carcass of a sheep, but on closer examination discovered to be the body of a man. It lay with its forehead resting on its hands, dried to a mummy by the intense heat of the western summer. He luck's in, and for no mistake, said the shepherd, scratching the back of his head, while he took stock of the remains. He picked up a stick and tapped the body on the shoulder. The flesh sounded like leather. He turned it over on its side. It fell flat on its back like a board, and the shriveled eyes seemed to peer up at him from under the blackened wrists. He stepped back involuntary, but recovering himself, leant on his stick and took in all the ghastly details. There was nothing in the blackened features to tell aught of name or face, but the dress proclaimed the remains to be those of a European. The old man caught sight of a black bottle and got him thinking. Presently he knelt down and examined the soles of the dead man's blucher boots, and then rising with an air of conviction, exclaimed, Brummy by gosh! Busted up at last! I told you so, Brummy, he said impressively, addressing the corpse. I always told as how it be, and here ye are, you thundering, jumped-up cuss of God fool. You could earn more than any man in the colony, but you'd lush it all away. I always said as how it would end, 
and now you can see for yourself. Spectre was coming to see me, to get fixed up and set straight again. Then you was going to swear off, same as you always did. And here you are. And now I expect I'll have to fix you up for the last time and make you decent. For it won't do to leave you a lion out here like a dead sheep. He picked up the corked bottle and examined it. To his great surprise, it was nearly full of rum. Well, this gets me, exclaimed the old man. Me luck's in this Christmas, and no mistake. He must have got the jams early in his spree, or he wouldn't have been making for me with near a bottle full left. Howsome never, here goes. Looking round, his eyes lit up with satisfaction as he saw some bits of bark which had been left by a party of strippers who had been getting bark there for the stations. He picked up two pieces, one about four and the other six foot long, and each about two feet wide, and brought them over to the body. He laid the longest strip by the side of the corpse, which he proceeded to lift onto it. Come on, Brummy, he said, in a softer tone than usual. You ain't as bad as you might be, considering as it must be three good months since you slipped your wind. I spect it was the rum as preserved you. It was the death of you when you was alive, and now you're dead. It preserves you like, like a mummy. Then he placed the other strip on top, with the hollow side downwards, thus sandwiching the defunct between the two pieces. Removed the saddle strap, which he wore for a belt, and buckled round the one end, while he tried to think of something which would tie up the other. I can't take any more strips off my shirt, he said, critically examining the skirts of the old blue over the shirt he wore. I might get a strip or two more off, but it's a short enough already. Let's see, how long have I been a-wearing on that old shirt? I bought it just two days before five bob was pupped. I can't afford a new shirt just yet. Howsome never, seeing it's brummy. I'll just borrow a couple of more strips and sew them on again when I get home. He upended Brummy and placing his shoulder against the middle of the lower sheet of bark, lifted the corpse to a horizontal position. Then, taking the bag of bones in his hand, he started for home. I ain't a spendin' such a dull Christmas after all, he reflected as he plodded on. But he had not walked about a hundred yards when he saw a black goanna sidling into the grass. That's another of them there dang things, he exclaimed. That's two I've seed this morning. Presently, he remarked, You don't smell too sweet, Brummy. It must have been just about the middle of shearing when you pegged out. I wonder who got your last check. Shoo, there's another black goanna. There must be a flock of them. He rested Brummy on the ground while he had another pull at the bottle, and, before going on, packed a bag of bones on his shoulder under the body, but he soon stopped again. The thunder and jumped up bones is all skew whiffed, he said. Hold on, Brummy, and I'll fix him, while he settled the bones on his shoulder and took another pull at the bottle. About a mile further on, he heard a rustling in the grass to the right, and, looking round, saw another goanna gliding off sideways, with its long, snaky neck turned towards him. This puzzled the shepherd considerably. 
The strangest part of it being that Five Bob wouldn't touch the reptile, but slunk off with his tail down when ordered to sick him. There's something comic about them there goannas, said the old man at last. I've seen swords of grasshoppers and big mobs of kangaroos, but dang me if I ever seen a flock of black goannas afore. On reaching the hut, the old man dumped the corpse against the wall, wrong ends up, and stood scratching his head while he endeavoured to collect his muddled thoughts. But he had not placed Brummy at the correct angle, and consequently that individual fell forward and struck him a violent blow on the shoulder with the iron toes of his blucher boots. The shock sobered him. He sprang a good yard, instinctively hitching up his moleskins in preparation for flight. A backward glance revealed to him the true cause of the supposed attack from the rear. Then he lifted the body, stood it on its feet against the chimney, and ruminated as to where he should lodge his mate for the night, not noticing that the shorter sheet of bark had slipped down on the boots and left the face exposed. Expect I have to put you into the chimney trough for the night, Brummy, said he, turning round to confront the corpse. You can't expect me to take you into the hut, though I did it when you was in a worse state than... Lord! The shepherd was not prepared for the awful scrutiny that gleaned him from the, those empty sockets. His nerves received a shock, and it was some time before he recovered himself sufficiently to speak. Now look a here, Brummy, said he, shaking his finger severely at the delinquent. I don't want to pick a row with you. I do as much for you and more than any other man, and well you knows it. But if you starts playing any of your jumped up practical jokes on me, and a scaring of me after a humping you home, by the holy frost I'll kick you to Jim Rags, so I will. This admonition delivered, he hoisted Brummy into the chimney trough, and with a last glance towards the sheep yards, he retired to his bunk to have, as he said, a snooze. He had more than a snooze, however, for when he woke it was dark, and the bushman's instinct told him it must be nearly nine o'clock. He lit a slush lamp and poured the remainder of the rum into a pannikin, but... Just as he was about to lift the draught to his lips, he heard a peculiar rustling sound overhead and put the pot down on the table with a slam that spilled some of the precious liquor. Five Bob whimpered, and the old shepherd, though used to the weird and dismal, as one living alone in the bush must necessarily be, felt the icy breath of fear at his heart. He reached hastily for his old shotgun and went out to investigate. He walked around the hut several times and examined the roof on all sides, but saw nothing. Brummy appeared to be in the same position. At last, persuading himself that the noise was caused by possums or the wind, the old man went inside, bawled his billy, and after composing his nerves with a light supper and a meditative smoke, retired for the night. He was aroused several times before midnight by the same mysterious sound overhead, but, though he rose and examined the roof on each occasion by the light of the rising moon, he discovered nothing. 
At last he determined to sit up and watch until daybreak, and for this purpose took up a position on a log a short distance from the hut, with his gun laid in readiness across his knee. After watching for about an hour, he saw a black object coming over the ridge pole. He grabbed his gun and fired. The thing disappeared. He ran round the other side of the hut and there was a great black goanna in violent convulsions on the ground. Then the old man saw it all. The same cussed wretch has followed me home and has been having at Christmas dinner off old Brummy and a haunting of me in the bargain that jumped up Tinker. As there was no one by whom he could send a message to the station and the old man dared not to leave the sheep and go himself, he determined to bury the body the next afternoon. Reflecting that the authorities could disinter it for the inquest if they pleased. So he brought the sheep home early and made arrangements for the burial by measuring the outer casing of Brummy and digging a hole according to those dimensions. That minds me, he said. I never rightly knowed Brummy's religion. Blessed if I ever did. How some never. There's one thing certain. None of them there piano-fingered parsons is going to take the trouble to travel out into this God-forgotten part to hold service over him, seeing as how his last checks blued. But, as I've got the funeral arrangements all in my own hands, I'll do justice to it and see that Brummy has a good comfortable burying and more's unpossible. It's time you turned in, Brum, he said, lifting the body down. He carried it to the grave and dropped it into one corner like a post. He arranged the bark so as to cover the face and, by means of a piece of clothesline, lowered the body to a horizontal position. Then he threw in an armful of gum leaves and then, very reluctantly, took the shovel and dropped in a few shovelfuls of earth. And this is the last of Brummy, he said, leaning on his spade and looking away over the tops of the ragged gums on the distant range. This reflection seemed to engender a flood of memories in which the old man became absorbed. He leaned heavily upon his spade and thought, After all, he murmured sadly, After all, it were Brummy. Brummy, he said at last, It's all over now. Nothing matters now. Nothing didn't ever matter, nor, nor don't. You used to say how to be all right tomorrow. Tomorrow's come, Brummy. Come for you. It ain't come for me yet, but it's a coming. He threw in some more earth. You don't remember, Brummy, and maybe you don't want to remember. I don't want to remember, but, well, but, you see, that's where you got the pull on me. He shoveled in some more earth and paused again. The dog rose with ears erect and looked anxiously first at his master and then into the grave. There ought to be something said, muttered the old man. Tain't right to put you under like a dog. There ought to be some sort of salmon. He sighed heavily in the listening silence that followed his remark and proceeded with his work. He filled the grave to the brim this time and fashioned the mound carefully with his spade. Once or twice he muttered the words, I am the resurrection, 
As he laid the tools quietly aside and stood at the head of the grave, he was evidently trying to remember the something that ought to be said. He removed his hat, placed it carefully on the grass, held his hands out from his sides and a little to the front, drew a long deep breath and said with a solemnity that greatly disturbed Five Bob, Hashes to ashes, dust to dust, brummy and in hopes of a great and glorious resurrection, he sat down on a log nearby, resting his elbows on his knees, and passed his hand wearily over his forehead, but only as one who was tired and felt the heat. And presently he rose, took up the tools, and walked back to the hut, and the sun sank again on the grand Australian bush. The nurse a tutor of eccentric minds, the home of the weird, and much that is different from the things in other lands. The End Henry Lawson was a short story writer and balladist. He was born on the 17th of June 1867 at Grenfell, New South Wales, eldest of four surviving children of Niels Hertzberg Larson, Norwegian-born miner and his wife Louisa Nee Albury. With Peter often absent, Louisa was lonely and vulnerable. Responsibility began to fall on Henry's young and rather frail shoulders and intensified in him a tendency to reclusiveness and introversion and a personal conviction that he was somehow different from others in a way that cut him off from them. Lawson attended school sporadically and then worked for his father. After his parents separated, he moved with his mother to Sydney. There, he was apprenticed to a coach painter in Clyde, a suburb of Sydney. Around this time, he started writing poems and publishing them in the Sydney press. Sydney was a tough period in Lawson's personal life. He did not have a permanent abode and drank heavily, but he published many pieces. Lawson was politically affiliated with the Bulletin, a Sydney-based newspaper that was highly influential in Australian life at the time and well into the mid-20th century. The publication was distinctly pro-union and focused primarily on Australian national identity and rural life. It was a natural home for Lawson and his focus on the Australian bush. Yet Lawson seemed in a rut, failing to concentrate his energies and gifts much beyond what was required for subsistence, spending more and more time in favourite bars around Sydney. In 1892, the Bulletin's literary editor, recognising something of Lawson's inner faltering, J.F. Archibald, suggested he take a trip inland at the Bulletin's expense. With five pounds and a rail ticket to Burke, he set out in September 1892 on what was to be one of the most important journeys of his life. Much of what Lawson saw in the drought-blasted west of New South Wales during the succeeding months appalled him. You can have no idea of the horrors of the country out there, he wrote to his aunt. Men tramp and beg and live like dogs. Nevertheless, the experience at Burke itself and in its surrounding districts through which he carried his swag absolutely overwhelmed him. 
By the time he returned to civilization, he was armed with memories and experiences, some of them comic but many shattering, that would furnish his writing for years. Thank you for listening to Morpeth Moments. I hope you return to hear about stories involving the people and places of Morpeth and its surrounding districts. Bye for now. <laughs>